What is an honor and a privilege to be with you once again. Uh, I am Matt Richardson. I'm one of the ruling elders at Grace Coastal Church down between Bluffton and Beaufort. So only a couple hours down the road. Uh, I'm grateful to arrive this morning and to see that uh, it appears that uh, most of the impact of the recent hurricane uh, has been minimal or, or most people have been spared for that. So that's wonderful blessing, uh, an answer to prayer. Uh, one thing I will say is that uh, recently my family and I were in North Carolina. They have seasons in North Carolina, which uh, we don't have here in the Low Country. And one thing that hurricanes do is while we were there in North Carolina, leaves began to change, you know, and the kids are like, wow. And we come down here and you, you see barely beginning of things turning yellow and orange or whatever. And then a hurricane comes through and blows all that away. So <laughs> it's back to looking like summer. At least we know that it's, uh, it's fall in the low country when Starbucks starts selling pumpkin spice lattes. So, um, I'm glad to be back this morning again uh, to, to worship with you. Well, I'm going to be bringing a message of, of John, uh, the Gospel of John, uh, and, and talk to you about Jesus uh, here uh, this morning. And if you have your Bibles and can turn with me, uh, we're going to read from John chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 9. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. He who has ear, give ear to the word of God. And I will ask you that as we're reading scripture, if you would please stand, if you are able. Now after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew what he had already been, through, been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. You may be seated. Let us pray. Great God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the message that you give to us, Father, that, that we have been created and we have been made and we have been placed on this earth, Father, to serve you and to glorify you and to enjoy you. And Father, you have given us your instruction. You've given us your story. You've given us our story through the work of through your work, and through the fellowship that comes through the completed work of your precious, holy, and perfect Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the work of Christ. We thank you for, for all that he does still. And Father, we, we pray this morning that this story that we've read, that this work of his will live in us, that we will come to know you better, and that by your Spirit, Father, we will live stronger for you. Lord, we pray that we're able to focus today on Christ, and that I may decrease, that you may increase. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, whenever you're down or, or feeling discouraged, uh, there are several places in the Bible that you can go uh, to find encouragement. Uh, one of them, of course, is the Psalms. You can always read one of the Psalms. Uh, it's great. Uh, recently, I've been working through uh, the uh, sections of Psalm 119. It's kind of hard to read all that in one sitting, the largest book. 
but it's beautiful. It, it just lifts you up. It encourages you. It's just it's praise to God and praise for all he's done. Uh, another place you can go is to look at the miracles of Christ. And uh, it's incredible to see the work of Christ and, the, and everything. It could have been very easily God could have presented the Gospels to us as just a story of Jesus and a, and a lot of doctrine that comes with that or, or telling, uh, telling us how to live uh, in a great way. But instead, he gives us these stories of his son, Jesus Christ. And, and Christ worked, and he did miraculously, miraculous, wonderful things. His teachings were incredible, but also the things that he did with his hands and with his voice. Uh, as he traveled around with his disciples and he, he saw people and met with people, they were incredible and it's wonderful. When you read Christ's miracles and when you think about them, it, it helps, to, uh, helps to place sometimes some of the troubles that we have in our lives or some of the struggles that we have. It helps to place them under a different light or, or remind us that we're not alone, that we're, that we're definitely cared for and loved. You know, the Gospels have account after account of, of Jesus and his healing hands Miraculous events from walking on water to the feeding of thousands of people. The passage today is one of, the, one of these remarkable stories of the New Testament. We've read a miracle of Jesus, but it's not just any miracle that's happened. There's healing, of course. There's a soul in need. But this is a little different. Uh, there's a glimpse here of the profound mysteries of Christ, his divine nature. Um, the reaction of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, of course. But something differs. One thing is that the person who is being healed does not ask to be healed. Generally, when Jesus uh, performs a miracle, someone's bringing a child or they're bringing a friend or they've asked, please help me. In this case, the guy doesn't do that. Uh, Christ seeks him out and he is healed. Of course, you know, Mary and, and you know, Lazarus didn't ask to be raised from the dead, but Mary and Martha certainly asked Jesus to do this. So it's a little unique in that way, and it'll, it'll speak volumes to us as we think about this today. In chapter 5 of the gospel, John takes, uh, uh, tells us that um, he's taken us to a place of miracles. It's, um, it's the pool of Bethesda, and it's a place that reminds us of a location right here in the low country. And we'll talk about this in just a minute. A place of miracles, a place of healing. Uh, you look at verse 1, it says... Um, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. John in his gospel often marks things and events by feasts. If you've ever noticed that when you're reading reading different gospels. John will remember a feast. I love to eat. I could tell you that we were in North Carolina. I sought out some barbecue while I was up there. Things like that. And so, you know, John, and, and we do this, you do this. I've reached the age now where when I'm asked to remember something, I'm generally trying to remember what event was near, you know, what did we do? Was it Christmas time? I don't know. You know, and so this is what John is doing as a matter of marking uh, what he's talking about. In most cases, though, when John talks about a feast in his gospel, he's talking about something that's going to relate directly to Christ and some of the actions and some of the things that he performs. Very often, Jesus goes and, and he performs a miracle, or he does something, or there's some encounter with the Pharisees, and it's re- it related. The thing that he does is generally related to the theme of the feast that the Jews are celebrating that time. Jesus does these things on purpose. But Paul, uh, John just mentions this feast, but it doesn't seem to have any real significance, which is interesting. But it just explains more why Jesus probably was in Jerusalem at the time. Why would he come out of Galilee and come all the way to Jerusalem just for this to happen? And so we read on verse 2. Uh, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And the pool of Bethesda 
It's located in the heart of the old city of Jerusalem, just north of the Temple Mount. It's a place of refuge and comfort to many people. Beth Hesda in, in uh, Aramaic can translate to mean house of mercy or house of grace, kind of like hospital in a way. Indeed, it attracted many sick and infirm people who sought healing waters or at least the, the sheltered atmosphere that was there. A cool place in a city of hot, dry stone, if you'll think about that. But it wasn't an ordinary public pool. It wasn't just a place where people went to cool off or where sick people went to get out of the way or to maybe like, uh, you know, a few months ago, we went and visited uh, Georgia. My family's in Georgia. We stopped, uh, took a day trip down and saw Warm Springs. That's a little town there. The Little White House is where uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt used to go down and enjoy the, the Warm Springs to help his polio when he was, when he was uh, struggling with that and suffering with that. And so that, that's a spring that has a healing quality that he would, that he would go to. And this spring was very similar, very similar uh, there, right in the middle of Jerusalem. Now, um, the, the city, um, uh, it says, in, these, in this area lay a multitude of invalids, verse 3, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And, but what was it about this water that they really wanted? And there's a verse that's probably missing from your Bible, verse 4, which is a verse of explanation. Everybody looks down at verse 4. Hey. Uh, a verse of explanation that was actually added probably later. It only appears in one of the later texts. But it explains that it says, in that case, an angel would stir the water. That was at least the legend that they had there at that pool. So all of these lame and crippled and, and suffering people are gathered around this pool. And at some random point, the water would stir. And then the first person into that water would find healing. So that was the legend. And there may have been something behind that. I don't know. But that was what people looked for, and that's what everyone waited for. Um, it says, uh, you know, verse 4 claims that, uh, you know, when there was a stirring up of water, it would cure whatever disease that he had. You know, it's fascinating. Interesting thing about it. There is a place, like I said a moment ago, in the low country, and some of y'all may know this or may have been there. It's called God's Acre Healing Springs, and it's in Blackville, South Carolina. I don't know if y'all have ever traveled up uh, between Orangeburg and Columbia. I see some heads nodding, maybe. Between Orangeburg and Columbia, it's kind of one of these roadside oddities. You can read about this thing. Uh, but when you go, and I can't remember how I found out about it first time. I think somebody, I, I work at a bank. I think one of my customers told me. And I'm always looking for road trips with the family. And so we drove up there. And lo and behold, you pull in. It's a little roadside stop. And there's a spring bubbling up. And they've got someone set up pipes and water, crystal clear water bubbling out. And it's in the, it's in the watershed of the Edisto, actually the south uh, fork of the Edisto River. So if you're familiar with that area, you know, it's kind of a swampy, uh, low-lying area, but there's limestone underneath, and that limestone is part of the bedrock that uh, underneath that is the aquifer that flows uh, under everyone's feet. It comes out of the Appalachian Mountains and ends up down in Florida. So when you're drinking that spring water in Florida, that's ultimately where it's coming from. But this is the same thing, and it just bubbles up, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and people have jugs, and they have jars, and they gather this stuff, and, and people claim that it heals you to drink it. Now, it's wonderful water. It's delicious. We always bring milk jugs and various things like that, and we fill them up. My kids love this place. They always beg to try to stop. You know, it's a little out of the way, so we don't stop very often. But people come, and whenever you're there, you will hear a tale or a testimony of someone who can claim that these waters healed their mother's cancer. Or maybe they're drinking it, and their back hasn't hurt anymore, that type of thing. It's very interesting. It's just wonderful, beautiful, clear, mineral-type water. And it probably does have some properties like that, which is interesting. But this is that type of place. It's got a legend about it. 
and it's interesting and it attracts people. And when you go to Healing Springs, if you ever take the drive, you will meet people from all over the country. You know, last time we were there, somebody pulled up with a trailer that had one of those big tanks on the back of it. And he was going to try to get enough water to take back to, to uh, Virginia or someplace like that. And he said, it's amazing. You know, where does he find time to do that? But that's the type of place that it is. And that's what's going on at Bethesda. And so Jesus, uh, in the middle of all this, uh, this is where Jesus comes. And he shows up and it's, it's surrounded by a, uh, a throng of people. It's surrounded by uh, tons of folks who are just there and they're waiting. And that's, that's kind of similar when you go to Higgins Springs. But when you come there, this, if you would imagine this pool is surrounded by stairs and stones and steps and it's just crowded with, with sick people and folks on blankets and, and they're all watching the water. They're all waiting for something to happen. And here comes Jesus and he comes and, and he sees the people and you, you've got to know that his heart must have grieved as the creator of the universe, as the, as the son of God, as the, as the man sent to, to bring healing of body and soul to those in need. And, and you know, when you think about this, sometimes why, you often wonder, why didn't Jesus just wave his hand and heal everybody? You know, send them home. Everybody go home, get out of here. He could have done that, but he didn't do that. He didn't. He had a, he had a different plan, maybe, had a different purpose. And his eyes, he fixes his eyes on one man, that's lying there in that crowd. Maybe this was the man, the one man that wasn't looking at the water. Think about that. Uh, the one man that's just lying there. And so Jesus picks his way through the crowd and you've got to imagine his disciples and they followed him here and their disciples are like, what in the world is he going to do this time? And they're watching and maybe they expected something just bang and everybody get up and take their cloths. But they, they, maybe they know Jesus well enough at this point and know something's about to happen that they'll not quite expect. And so Jesus picks his way through the crowd and the man is lying there. Perhaps he blocks the man's light, you know, gets his attention. And Jesus is there. And verse 5 explains a little bit about that man. It says, uh, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. Can you imagine that? Well, maybe you can. Uh, maybe you have been dealing with something for that long or longer in your life. Maybe you know someone or care about someone who, who is or who has. What kind of wounds or infirmities do you have? What besetting sins do you have that you wrestle with? Maybe you think that, if, that you don't have any sins, and maybe that's part of the problem. We all struggle with something. We all deal with something. And this man had a physical ailment and had been coming for 38 years to this place. His wounds were physical. Maybe our wounds are are invisible. Maybe they're in the heart. Maybe it's something you struggle with that no one knows. Maybe everyone's aware of it, but maybe no one knows what you deal with. And you hope and you wonder, well, I have relief one day. Jesus' own disciples constantly wrestled with the things that Jesus said, the thoughts that he, he shared with them, the things that he told them, the terrifying prophecies about things. And they wondered and they, they often were confused. Why, Jesus, aren't you clearer with us? And we, sometimes we do this with God. We pray and we seek God to heal us. Or we seek God to, to do something for us, to take this away from us. You, you pray for God to heal you. You pray for your children to be saved. 
You pray for him to, be, to reveal his will to you. Maybe you have a choice or a decision to make. Come on, God, tell me what I need to do. You pray for things in your church. To, you, you need a new pastor. Maybe you need a new job. Or maybe you're seeking love. Please, God, show me what I'm supposed to do. What are you going to do for us? And sometimes you lose hope. It's real easy to lose hope. And you, and you start to grumble or you start to feel like maybe, maybe God's part of the problem. Maybe you even get angry with God. You know, Martin Luther used to say that. Someone said one time, uh, you, know, you must love God tremendously. And he says, love God. Sometimes I hate God. Because the more you become aware of who God is and how he works in your life, sometimes the more frustrated you can get. I need to know more. Please tell me more. Sometimes there's a legal phrase. It's called accessory to the fact. So if you are aware of a crime being committed or that's been committed and you don't say or do anything about it, then you become part of the problem. You become part of that. You become an accessory to that. And sometimes we treat God that way, don't we? God, please tell me what I need to do. Give me what I need. Please heal me. It's easy to lose hope. But someone's brought this man every day to this pool and they've set him down by the water. Maybe this is somebody he knows, he has to go to work, has to leave him there. Uh, Maybe it's a neighbor or a friend, that type of thing. But he's there every day. And he's part of this group, this society there at the pool probably. Uh, They get to to know each other. uh, And uh, and, and he gets gets set in his ways. He gets set in his condition. Then we read verse 6. Jesus is there suddenly. And Jesus finds him and he asks him. Look at verse 6. It says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Jesus is here in the midst of the sick and the lame because these are his people. This is to whom he is called. He is called to you and I to be with us in the midst of our problems because we are his people. And he goes to these people at this pool. You know, Luke 14 talks about this. You know, Jesus in Luke 14 is giving instructions and he talks about the people to whom his disciples should minister to and to whom we should be care about and be concerned about. He says, Jesus says, when you give a banquet, this is verse, uh, Luke 14, uh, starting at verse 12, he says, when you, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return. So that you can be repaid. You, know, you invite a friend. Oh, oh we got to have them over to the house now too. Mm. You know, make your roast again. You know, that's, how, that's how we think about it. But this, he, Jesus is like, don't ask these people to come. He says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And then you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So at the pool, Jesus Jesus kneels beside one of these people and he says, do you want to be healed? (laughs) Think about that question for a second. Do you want to be healed? Who would be there at that pool and not want to be healed, right? If you're dealing with something in your crypt, that sounds almost like a cruel question to ask, doesn't it? Hey, buddy, you want to be healed? No, Jesus, don't hear me. No, he, he, the, the guy is just sitting there and he's crippled and Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? And it sounds like, a, it sounds like something, I mean, you wouldn't go into a cancer ward and ask somebody this guy, hey, buddy, do you, do you want to not have cancer anymore? You wouldn't, you wouldn't see someone with a crutch and kick the crutch out from under their leg and, 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 and say, hey, you know, don't you want to be healed? You wouldn't treat this pe- people this way but, because people want to be healed. You want to be healed. Even this man probably wants to be healed, Right? Or does he? Maybe that's the question that Jesus is pointing us to. Does he want to be healed? 
You know, like the woman at the well, Jesus comes to the woman at the well and he sees her heart. You know, and the woman at the well is talking to Christ and, and she's like, oh boy, here we go again. Another smarty Jew is gonna talk to me about something. And Jesus says, hey, I know you. I know all about you. I know that the man you're not married to is the fifth man you're not married to. And he knew everything about her, her life. This man's life, this crippled man's life was laid out to Christ in this eternal timeline where he had seen everything that this man had done or was or is. And what Jesus sees doesn't impress him. And the man's answer doesn't impress him either. What did the man say? Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And everybody at that pool, you would think, yeah, heal me now, please. And the man answers, he says, verse 7, so the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. So he becomes a man of excuses. And we've looked at a man of miracles. We've talked about ways in which we need healing. And now we see a man who needs healing. But instead of saying, yes, Jesus, heal me now, he has an excuse for why he's not healed. Maybe why he won't be healed. The man's pretty beaten down by his condition, by crowds, by life. He's probably accepted defeat, hasn't he? But there's also more going on as well. Perhaps Jesus' question reveals uh, something about the degree of his acceptance of his situation. You know, he doubtless receives money that's given to him as an offering. So that's something. Mothers point, out, point him out to their children. Look at that man. Don't be like him. Feel sorry for him, that type of thing. Rich people toss him coins. So he's got this thing going on in life, possibly. You know, 38 years, he's been at this pool. He knows people there. They know him. The guards know him. I mean, he's the guy that comes to the pool, and he sits there every day. D.A. Carson, in his commentary, talks about this passage. He says, his words to Christ or almost like the grumblings of an old and not very perceptive man who thinks he is answering a dumb question. Of course, what? What kind of question is that, Jesus? And at worst, the man is a, a grifter who, is, who works the system. At best, he's awash in self-pity and pain has become his identity. Uh, he'd long ago given up on happiness. Uh, you know, what woman's going to want a crippled man? Come on. I'll never have children or descendants to carry my name. He's feeling sorry for himself. He becomes this man of excuses. And that, that reminds me, it makes me think about what excuses I make to God. What excuses do you have when you're confronted with things in this life or maybe the will of God? Like the lame man, we love our excuses, don't we? We see God at work in our lives, but we still cling to our bitterness and live by the excuses in which we believe? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be saved? Do you want to be saved from the power of sin? What excuses do you cling to? Do you want to be saved from the grip of addiction? Do you want to be saved from self-pity? Do you want to be saved from hurting others with your words and with your actions? Maybe you overeat because your job is stressful. You need the comfort of food. Maybe you've been hurt by someone. How long will you carry a grudge? Years, decades, generations? I recently was visiting my mom and she was telling me some family history and there's some branch of the family she mentioned. 
I was like, oh, okay, I wonder where they are. You know, it's like, oh, they're in North Georgia, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, you ever talk to them? No, there was an incident with a crib. I said, what? You know. I said, well, did you do something to this crib? No, it was like, it was like back in the 1930s or something. It's like, mom, come on. You know, and that's what people will do. That's what families will do. That's what we do. We carry things around. It's my badge. Yeah, well, he hurt me, and until he does something to make me feel better about it, I'm just going to remind him of it every now and then, quietly, passively, that type of thing. Maybe you covet things that you don't have, things that don't belong to you because others rub their success in your face. You know, social media is very interesting. Pastors love to bang away at social media. Uh, you know, and I'm not going to do that, really, because I'm all over it. So please don't look at my Facebook page. But uh, my wife uh, has this dream, this bucket list thing that she wants to do. Uh, she wants to swim with the piggies. You ever heard of this? It's uh, down. I see some nods. You know, y'all are all great. Uh, this is an island in the Bahamas where you can go and swim with pigs, right? It's, a, <laughs> it's You take a cruise or you go down there and you go to this little island and the people are like, hey, and there's pigs and they'll take you out there and you swim and there's these little pigs and it's cute. And, and, it's, and I keep telling my wife, I said, we just go to the neighborhood pool, baby. And hey, you know, <laughs> swim with the pigs, right? <laughs> you should see her roll her eyes. She's not here today. She'd be like, oh. even somewhere today, she just rolled her eyes and doesn't know why. Um, you know, I, I keep, uh, my doctor tells me to eat more seafood. And I think this technically makes bacon seafood. I'm not sure. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll stop. But think about this. Her sister, my wife's sister, got a chance to go swim with the piggies a few months ago. And so her Facebook page was filled with piggies and swimming and things like that. And Chris was like, oh, my goodness, I want to go. And she could very easily have gotten jealous of Lori for doing this. And me, 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 I don't ever get to go. Why don't you take me to swim with the pig? That kind of stuff. You know, my wife could have easily have done that. She doesn't. You know, she loves her sister, loves me. And but that's how things can work sometimes, social media stuff, people posting something happy about themselves, and we always post the happy stuff, right? And we never post the bad things that we do or say or the arguments that we have. But we, we post the nice things. She could very easily allow, have allowed that to take over and become, become covetousness or jealous, jealousy in her heart. Instead, she just added it to the bucket list of things I now need to try and do one day to keep her happy. Uh, sounds like a future anniversary trip or something like that. Uh, surprise. <laughs> Do you see what Jesus may have seen in the heart of the lame man? Are you willing to give up the sin that is most precious to you? Jesus hears the excuses. He knows the defeat in the man's heart. He's not callous. He knows everything about this man. But he heals him anyway. He doesn't say, look, I'm going to come back when you've got a little better attitude, bub. No, he says, no, let's, let's take care of this right now. In verse 8. You know, and there's no fairy dust or anything. Jesus just says, hey, get up, take your bed, and walk. This is the miracle. This is what happens. He doesn't say go home, and at 5 o'clock, you'll feel something strange. No, he says, no, get up, get out of here. Take your bed, and go. Jesus heals, and the man hasn't asked for this. He's, got, he's done nothing to deserve this, but yet Jesus heals him. And it, this helps the man, but it also reveals something incredible about Christ. It is an act of pure compassion, pure divine power. The take up your bed and walk command is important. It's the same voice that the Son of God, the Son of God on the last day will say, uh, rise up, get up. We will hear that again one, one day 
in Christ's voice. Jesus could have told him to leave, leave the bedroll. Nope, there's somebody else coming along. They could probably use it. You don't need it anymore. Leave it behind. No, he says, no, take your bed and go. It's been 38 years. And just as 38 years proved the gravity of the disease, so the carrying of the bed, rolling it up and putting it over his shoulder or picking up the bundle and carrying it away, that showed the completeness of the healing that Christ had done. And it says in verse 9, it says, And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and he walked. Hallelujah. And John adds one phrase. He says, And that day was the Sabbath. Now, if you've read ahead, and we haven't covered all the verses today, you'll know how this story ends. That the Sabbath played as big a part as the miracle. Because the man carrying his bed gained attention from people. And Jesus knew, of course. But this man walked. He, he was healed. When you're forgiven your sins, are you tempted to return to them? Maybe Jesus said, take your bed because I don't want you coming back to it. Take it, get rid of it. Wash that thing. You know, we want to come back to our sins after we're forgiven or after we're healed. All of us struggle to, with this to one degree or another. Again and again, we return to the bondage of the past, just like the Israelites complained to Moses that they wanted to go back to Egypt where it was nice and they had three square meals a day. But like the man, you are free. Living in the freedom that comes through Christ can be one of the most difficult things for you to do as a believer. When you understand that the freedom you have in Christ, then your hope will return. And with freedom comes responsibility, doesn't it? But once you have that freedom, once you realize that freedom, there your hope lies. This is, the, this is, this is what the lame man at Bethesda could not do. Uh, as we talked about, John knows that this is the Sabbath and he goes and he, he's carrying his bed. Now, now, Jewish society in that day on a Sunday afternoon or Sabbath afternoon, Sunday's hours, whatever, but he's walking down the street and he's carrying his bed. And by Jewish law at the time, maybe not by Old Testament rules, but by Jewish law at the time, you couldn't do any work. And carrying your bed was definitely on the list of work. And so he stood out like a sore thumb walking in a crowd. Hey, wait, who's that guy carrying his bed? And so the Jews, the leaders, they grab him, they talk to him, and they find out who is this guy that's violating the Sabbath. And of course, the guy isn't, you know, very often when there are miracles, like the man born, the man born blind in John chapter nine. John, a couple chapters later, talks about a man who was born blind and Jesus heals him and he can't shut up about Jesus. You know, who healed you? I don't know his name, but he's right over there. But this guy, he, he mumbles and blah, 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 blah. It's not me. I didn't do it. It wasn't my fault. You know, later he actually, he, he says, well, this, this, this Jesus guy did it and he's the one that should be in trouble, not me. You know, he doesn't even take the responsibility for it. And so the Jews actually uh, confront Christ about this. And of course, Jesus is ready. You get the impression this was part of the deal. Uh, but they corner him and they're gonna just have at him because they finally have Jesus caught in something that he shouldn't have done helping someone work in, on the Sabbath while he himself was working on the Sabbath because healing someone. And Jesus says, what in the world are you guys talking about? He says, yeah, I can work on the Sabbath. And this is like one of the best comebacks in the Bible. If you look, you can uh, jump to verse 17 if you've got your Bibles open. And they say, well, what gives you the authority to work on the Sabbath? And Jesus says, well, my father works on the Sabbath and so can I. I mean, boom. He right there proclaims himself as Lord of the Sabbath. This is the one in whom you hope. This is the one who sets you free, who has set you free from your sins. 
Why do we go back to our sins over and over again when we have someone like this who loves us and cares for us and stands up for us? He's our advocate in heaven as well as our advocate on earth. Hoping in God and his word is so important to your life as a believer, you're actually commanded to do it. You know, scripture talks about this kind of hope all the time. Uh, Psalm 146, verse 5, it says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord his God. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. That's Psalm 31, 24. This hope saves you. It even saves us. Paul in Romans 8, 8, 24, he says, For in this hope we are saved. Now hope is not seen. Hope that is not seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? This hope saves you. This hope sustains you. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. It is a living hope within you. The reason that you proclaim him every day. First Peter. Uh, Peter's big on hope. And he saw these things. He was there. He says, First Peter uh, 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. American Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards uh, spoke of hope. He was the great revivalist before the revolution, who, who traveled through the Northeast and, and proclaimed the God. And, and a, great, a great sweep of the, the Holy Spirit, the sweep of the gospel just captivated our nation, in large part because of the preaching of this man, the work of the gospel, the work of Christ. But he says, he says, God must be trusted out of sight. In other words, when we cannot see which way it is possible for him to fulfill his word. Everything but God's mere word makes it look unlikely so that if persons believe, they must have hope against hope. He says, this is what the patriarchs did. This is what Job did and the psalmist, Ad, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all these people. He lists all these biblical people that, that had hope in God. And he says, he says, they all gave glory to God by trusting God in the darkness. So after all these years as a believer, or maybe you're a new believer, do you still have hope? Do you have this hope? Think about this. Gas is what, $3.50 a gallon? You know, we celebrate when it's like $3.10 or something. Woo. Food is getting expensive. You know, the cost of everything is going. Some shelves are bare. It's nothing like having a snack that you like that suddenly you can't get because they have to ship it from four countries away or something like that. War looms, pandemic. The world around you seems to forget God. How do you have hope in the middle of all this, right? Take hope in the Lord of the Sabbath and every day of your life. It's like the old hymn, Be still my soul. Be still my soul, thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. The man, Jesus comes to this man. This man says, I have no one. Jesus comes and he says, I am here. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your son. We thank you for his healing power. We thank you that we have stories to share. The greatest story, the most wonderful story, the good news of Jesus. 
Father, we thank you for his completed work, his faithfulness to go to the cross for us. Father, we have healing right in front of us. We have been healed by, our, by Christ of our sins. We daily seek to die to self, to live for him, to live for you. Lord, don't let us go back to our sins over and over again. Father, give us this hope that we hunger for. Father, remind us of who you are, of your power, and of what you are capable of doing, what you will do as you have promised. We thank you, we praise you, and it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.